Welcome to the Way Church Podcast. The Way Church exists to love God, love others, and make disciples. You can find out more about the Way Church at thewaychurchrva.com. Now we hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Amen, amen, amen. Church, you may grab your seats, grab your Bibles. We're going to be in John chapter 1. Thank you, Jenny. John chapter 1, verse 29 today. And so we are here starting a new Christmas series. So if it's your first day with us, it's a good day to jump on in. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. And here's the purpose of of the series. The Christmas season that we are currently in, as you're fully aware of, brings a lot of busyness and a lot of distractions. And what a great time to be reminded why this season specifically exists. Jesus. And so what we're going to look at is some names of Jesus to remind us of who Jesus is with an effort and a goal to bring us into a deeper, richer understanding and celebration of this season that we call Christmas. And so we're going to look at one main passage today. That's John chapter 1, verse 29. But we're going to talk about a lot of other things. That's going to be one passage. Usually we have a, a bigger diet of Scripture. But this series, we're going to really focus on just a name or a few names of Jesus. And so for those taking notes, you can title this sermon, Lamb of God. Lamb of God. Amen. Not yet. We're not there yet. So many of you probably know this. Some of you don't. Some of you just don't care, but I'm going to share it anyway. I love football. I love college football. I say love. I know you're not supposed to love things. You get what I'm saying. I enjoy it. I don't want your, no emails. I got it. I love my wife. I love the Lord. I, got, I like football a lot, especially college football. And so yesterday, you know, the conference championships, which all of you know because all of you are Christians and you watch football. And so conference championship games and bowl seasons approaching. And it's interesting as I, I think about random things, but I look at all these college football teams and you wonder why they have the mascots that they do. Like, for instance, I, I root for the University of Missouri, Tigers. That's a pretty good mascot. You know, if the tiger attacks, not many things are survive a tiger attack. Good mascot. There's some other mascots that are questionable, right? You got Ohio State right now, who we'll see tonight if they get in the playoffs. Some of you don't even care about this. I'm going to say it anyway. They may get in the playoffs. They may not. You may have your opinions. Here's my opinion. What's up with the mascot? A Buckeye? We're the nuts. That's what the, the <laughs> gang of nuts. That's what we are. I, I don't know. I, I appreciate their intentionality. I'm not sure it's the fiercest thing. And I'm going to tread lightly here. My Virginia Tech fans. Not the greatest season. Originally, they were called the Gobblers. That's interesting, right? But then they changed it for a more fiercer animal the turkey. I don't know. I mean, Thanksgiving, we don't eat tigers. We eat turkeys. I'm just saying, not the greatest mascot. Why do I say that? Seems like, when we look at John 1, verse 29, John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God. I don't know about being called a lamb. That has to be up there with being called like a cream puff, a marshmallow, a snowflake. Not great things. The Lamb of God. 
So why would John give Jesus this name? And that's what we're going to talk about. But it's going to take a minute to get there because we're going to look at two other names that's going to lead us into better understanding this name. So it's going to take a minute. And really, that's pastor talk. That We're going to be here for a second, right? So put your seatbelts because we're going to cover some ground. That's what that means. The first name that we're going to look at is the first name that's really tied to what we call Christmas, right? Christ. So one of my kids, and I won't mention names, to save embarrassment. But when she came home from college for Thanksgiving break, what happened? On Thanksgiving Day, she was wearing Christmas socks. And so I immediately disowned her because it is not Christmas season yet. We, we do one holiday at a time in our house, okay? Like good Christians. And so I gave her a hard time. But man, the day after Thanksgiving, it was game on, right? We put the tree up. We have the Christmas decorations out. We watch Elf because it's the best Christmas movie that's ever been made. That's what we do. But central to Christmas is what? What's the word? Christ. Christ Mass. And so what we see and what we know is without Christ, Christmas is just a clutter mass, right? A gang of stuff that we get. That ultimately, we're going to recycle, regift, replace. But when we come to the name Christ, it's probably good to clear up some confusion. One, Christ was not Jesus' last name. Do we understand that? He was not born to Joseph and Mary Christ, right? Not his last name. It's also not an expletive that we shout out when we're in incredible amount of pain or incredibly aggravated, right? That's not like a, just a word we flippantly use. What does Christ mean? Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, right? So we see a Messiah, Christ, talking about the same thing, same title. When, um, through my years in the Air Force, there was a, when someone was selected for promotion. See, when you're just enlisted, your rank is on your sleeves. So it's based on stripes. The more stripes you got, the higher rank, basically. And so when you were selected for a promotion, chosen for promotion, they would have a public ceremony. And what you would do, like say, if I was pro- chosen for promotion, the next rank, I would have a couple guys with me. And what they would do, they would give you your next rank with tape on it. And so symbolically, they would place that on your arms until it's really effective. And I say place, they don't, didn't really place it because guys do what guys do. And so the biggest, strongest guys in the people that you work with would totally volunteer for this because what would happen is by placing, meaning they would both punch you as hard as they could to make sure it stuck in front of everyone. That's the way that they show that you were chosen, right? Not the best. So you broke a broken, broken arm and bruised. Anyway. So that was a way that was affirming in front of everyone they were chosen for this position. Throughout the Old Testament, there was a way to show how God chose specific people or specific roles, specifically the prophets, priests, and kings. Set apart, chosen, anointed. That's what Christ Messiah means. Chosen one, anointed one, set apart. And they would do this symbolically through the anointing of oil. So some examples, 1 Kings 19, you see Elijah to anoint Elisha to succeed him as prophet. Aaron was anointed as the first high priest, Leviticus 8. And Samuel both anointed Saul, King Saul, and King David. 
in 1 Samuel 10 and 16. But throughout the whole Old Testament, there was only one who the many promises, predictions, and prophecies were pointed to. The one who would fully and finally one day come to rescue, redeem, and reign, saving God's people by being the true prophet, priest, and king. Christ, Messiah. And the Bible gives a lot of different indicators of what this Christ Messiah would do. Be born in Bethlehem, be born of a virgin, succeeded by a forerunner, which Andy talked about a little bit last week. Let us well in and see that John the Baptist would be that forerunner. This Christ would be forsaken and pierced. He would suffer the bearer of sins of many and ultimately be resurrected. Plus hundreds of more prophecies and predictions that this Christ Messiah figure would fulfill. So as we look across the landscape of all these prophecies regarding the coming Christ, we see there was only one who fulfilled these promises, predictions, and prophecies perfectly. Jesus. Which begs the question, how did so many miss that Jesus was the Christ? I think there's danger here for us in the 21st century as there was for them in the first century. Danger of looking to God's word through the lens of what we want versus looking to God's word through the lens of what is God's will. Two different things we have to guard ourselves against. I mean, one example just comes to mind because we take a Roman verses like this. In Matthew 7, Jesus gives this amazing statement. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seeking, you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for everyone who asks. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open. And so we've taken verses like this and say, you know what? In the power of Jesus' name, because there's power in Jesus' name, I, I live by faith, and I'm confessing these things will happen. Because it says, if I ask, if I seek, if I knock, it will be given to me. And sometimes we come to verses like this with our wants and desires versus what God's will is. And it's funny, this verse is even better than many of us could even try to understand. Though it's possible, because in Luke 11, the parallel account of this passage gives more detail. It talks about ask, seek, and knock, and what will be given is the Holy Spirit for everyone. Meaning, everyone who comes to the Lord by faith alone, and Christ alone, by God's grace alone, will receive the promised Holy Spirit, meaning you are saved, sealed, and have that relationship restored, redeemed with God the Father that we were created to have in the first place. Everyone who seeks, asks, and knocks will be given God. Interesting. Our wants versus will. Will, God's will. 1 John 5, 14 gives even more explanation of how we ask. He says, this is the confidence that we have before him. If we ask anything, that's a lot of stuff, anything according to his will, he hears us. This is such a, a great biblical studies reminder that we interpret Scripture with Scripture. So it's easy to come to Matthew 7 through the lens of what we want versus God's will and say, in the name of Jesus, I confess these things because you said. But do, do they always align with God's will? Now, Romans 8 really gives a, a really good indicator of how we pray. Really, how we can't pray. 
Romans 8.26 says, In the same way the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses because we do not know what to pray for as we should. So here it says, you know, we're to pray, ask, seek, knock, these things, and God will give us the promised Holy Spirit. But even when we don't know how to pray, I don't know about you, that's a lot of times for me. Even though I don't know what to pray, how to pray, I trust Him, and He knows, and He actually intercedes for us, praying on our behalf. I say all this saying, there's danger in coming to God's Word and what we want versus what is actually God's will. I think that's some of the danger they fell in in the first century. The Jewish people expected the Christ to be this conquering king type of rescuer who would free them from the ravaging Roman regime. Even the disciples were confused. You see here, Jesus spent so much time with his disciples, and he was crucified, he was buried, resurrected on the third day, walked 40 days before he eventually ascended. And during that time in Acts chapter 1, the disciples asked him this. You say, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Like, is now the time? Like, you're going to come in, just take over things, establish your kingdom, free us from this oppression. And what should you say? He says, wait. More specifically, he says, it is not for you to know time, times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. He says, wait. Not yet. And he says, but. As you wait, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And he says this, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He says, not yet, but yet my kingdom is being established. And you, while you wait for this full and finally promise to come, you have a responsibility. You and all who would follow after me to be my witnesses. I don't know if you know this, but witnesses speak of what they've experienced. So we speak as we go to what we've experienced in the hope that's in Christ alone. And so for us, I'd be in all of Virginia, in all of the United States, and in, to the ends of the earth. And just a real quick aside point, it's and, and, and. That's so incredibly important. Because we hear or, or, or. So God's placed the way church, us as a faith family here in the West End of Henrico, for God's glory and to reach people for their own good to come to worship the one true God. Yet we don't stop here. It's and, 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 as we go. So many today, like so many then, misunderstood the purpose and plan of Jesus. I think some examples when you come to Jesus, we come with our hopes that he meets our hopes instead of the needs that he sees. The first century, they were hoping for freedom from the Roman rule. A lot of Christians in the 21st century say, if you come to Jesus, you'll be wealthy, healthy, happy. But is that necessarily God's will? The question I have for us is, what if Jesus came to give us something better? Something better than physical freedom in the 21st century. Something better than the cruise-like comfort, comfort in the 21st century. So what if he came to do something better than anything that we hoped or imagined? That's what we see in the name of Christ, the first name we're looking at. One who would fully, finally rescue, redeem, and reign as a true prophet, priest, and king. The quick other name we're going to look at is the name of Jesus. 
And like we said, there's power in Jesus' name. We know it, we sing it, but what does that mean? Despite popular opinion, the power of Jesus' name is not about our prosperity, but it is about his revealed plan. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. And this is interesting because there's all false gods, and what his name means is there's one God. His covenant name is Yahweh. Among other false gods of any culture you ever find yourself in, there's still only one God. And he saves. The question has to be saved from what? I think we use the terminology saved a lot, but what are we saved from? What are we saved to? It's interesting, Joseph, when he found his soon-to-be wife, he's engaged, found her to be pregnant, which he had no part of. Surprise. He had some questions, and like many of us do, we find ourselves in a situation, we start planning without even considering what God may have for us, and he was doing the same thing. Instead of him going to God, God came to him and by way of an angel, messenger. In Matthew 1, this angel said to Joseph, talking about Mary, she will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ didn't come to save temporarily from suffering, to give us comfort. Matter of fact, he said that you will be hated, you will be persecuted, you will have suffering because of my name. But he did come to save from eternal suffering by the way of consequences of our sin. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says this. It says, Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save, and his ear is not too deaf to hear. But your iniquities, that's your sins, are separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden him, hid his face from you, so that you, he does not hear. What we see in Jesus Christ is that God's chosen one, he saves his people from the severity of sin to security in him, extending forgiveness to all who would receive it. So it begs the question, how can we be forgiven? Or how does he forgive? How has the debt of sin been paid? The Jewish people would have said, well, that's, it. that's easy. It's what we've always done. It's by way of an unblemished, spotless lamb being sacrificed. To which John the Baptist would say, winner, winner, chicken dinner. That's what I'm talking about, right? Paraphrase, loose translation. 1 John 1.29, John the Baptist said, it says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this statement would have connected the minds to their memory regarding the coming Christ. Throughout all Old Testament history, which they knew very well, there was, again, prophecies, predictions about what this coming Christ would do and would look like, and even some typologies about types of pictures of what Christ is and would be. You see one in Genesis 22 with Abraham. Abraham has first son that he's waited a long time for, named Isaac. And then God told him to do something outrageous that didn't make any kind of sense, to go and sacrifice his one and only son. So they went. So him and his son Isaac went up the mountain, went to sacrifice his son, had him bound. At the moment he was getting ready to kill his son, by faith that God would resurrect his son, he was going to follow through. At the very moment, he hears stop. 
Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. He looks up and he's shown a ram caught in a thicket. Genesis 22 tells us in verse 13, so he, Abraham went and took the ram and sacrifices it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And it says, Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. That's so good. The Lord will provide. What we see is that Isaac's salvation came by way of substitution. Substitute had to take place. One more quick thing is another clear picture of what we see when we're thinking about what would have prompted their memories when they hear this Lamb of God reference to Jesus was the Exodus. God's people were being oppressed and enslaved by the Egyptians. And so they cried out to God. God heard them and did something about it. And so he sent nine plagues. And then the tenth one was the one, right? This is the one where he would pour out his wrath on everyone in the region. Everyone. His people included. Because they were steeped in idolatry as well. For all have sinned. And it was no different then. But he says this in Exodus 12. That there must be an unblemished animal from the sheep or goats. Sheep or goats. And he says this, that they're to take the blood of the animal, put it on the doorposts of their houses. And Exodus 12, 12 says this. God speaking, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike down every firstborn male in the land. Both people and animals, I am the Lord, and I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt. Now, it's interesting because all the gods means all the idol worship that's going on because there's no other gods. There's only one God. There's a lot of idol worship. Sin. He says this, The blood on the house where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is interesting. The, the blood applied to all who would believe and respond. They had to do something. Their faith produced works. Their faith produced action. And so they believed that God would do what he said he did, but also would fulfill what he said he would. So he would pour out judgment, but if they were to do this by faith in the blood, that he would actually pass over. And he did, because he's faithful. And so what we see is that Israelites' salvation came by way of substitution. They were saved because a lamb was sacrificed. So then we come to John the Baptist's statement again. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A short time later, they would see their doctrinal dots would be connected by this confession as Jesus would live up to his name. The Lamb of God. First Peter 1. We, I want you guys to see this because we'll put it on the screen. First Peter 1, verse 18 says, For you know that you were redeemed. Let's pause real quick. That redeemed means bought out of. Meaning that you were enslaved, but you've been bought out and now are freed. Been redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors. And you were not, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. Romans 3, verse 23, that many of us know, 
It's a shame that we don't know verse 24 so much. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God did something about it. It says, they, are, they, being all, are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a mercy seat by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 simply says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Our salvation comes by way of substitution. Saved from an eternity of suffering, which Romans 6, 23 says, For the wage of sin is death, eternal separation from God, eternal judgment, because he is just, and he would be unjust if he didn't punish sin accordingly but saved to an eternity with him. The Bible says as sons. This is important. Galatians 3.26 says, through faith you are sons of God in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say sons and daughters. Why? Because the Bible is so super sexist? It's not. Sons comes with the inheritance and the authority of sonship that sons and daughters are all into because of Christ Jesus. We're all considered co-heirs with Christ. This is such an amazing statement. And the equality that this made back in the first century would have been just radical and revolutionary. It is today too. Hopefully that makes sense to you. Save from suffering, save to eternity, worshiping the Lord as sons and daughters of the King. This is Jesus. This is the whole series about this is Jesus. We need to see who Jesus is and how that impacts our daily lives. This is Jesus, the only perfect sacrifice to which any man can be saved. The only true perfect prophet who embodied and preached the word of God. The only true priest who sacrificed and paid for our sins to reconcile us to to the Father. The only true king who has authority. Then, now, and forever over all things. This is Jesus. And this starts to frame our picture of why we worship. Because of who he is. And this is why we understand the truth in John 14, verse 6. When Jesus says, I am the way. Not a way. The way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. This is what we can't miss, that God desires a right relationship with him. Desires for you and I to have a right relationship with him. And we need that right relationship with him. Whether you know it or not, we need it. And this right relationship cannot be accomplished by any other means besides through Christ alone. It's not the common thought that, you know, all roads lead to heaven anyway not obey the Ten Commandments. It's not align your chakras. It's not if I reincarnate enough times. It's not obey the five pillars. It's not be good enough because, you know, people like you. It's none of those things. It's through Christ alone. Our rebellion against God is sin. Requires reconciliation from God, which is Jesus. When Jesus was in the garden praying, he brought Peter, James, and John with him in the moments that he would be 
moments before he'd be crucified. And they went to pray. And this is what Jesus prays. He says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And he's not talking about gross, unsweet tea, right? It's not, shouldn't it be a thing. The cup is God's wrath that he's getting ready to bear, the full consequence as he bears the weight of the sin of the world. He says, if it's possible, if there's any other way, let's do that. Because if not, this seems like an awful waste of my blood. But then he says this, yet, not as I will, but as you will. And he went to the cross. Why? Because there was no other way. And on the cross, when Jesus said, it is finished, meaning to telestai, paid in full, the debt that we owed was paid fully and finally, that sin debt was finished. 1 John 2, 2 says, he, being Jesus, he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Propitiation. You know, I went to a seminary, might as well use some big words every once in a while, right? Propitiation. The payment that satisfies. There's only one payment that satisfies sin. That's the payment that Jesus gave through his death, living the perfect life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we couldn't die, to pay the penalty for sin that we had no way of paying, he did on our behalf. It was like last night, so every Friday or Saturday night, depends, we have family night at the Weatherspoon house. We order pizza. I say order. We go pick up pizza. And it'd be like if I go in the pizza place and start digging in my pockets and pull out some lint and say, here you go. Are you going to give me pizza? No. That lint is like our good works. Like we can't be enough, good enough, do enough things to pay the price that our sin debt occurred. Jesus did it for us. When John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this takes away as Jesus was charged with and paid for our sin debt. This is the only way that we're to be reconciled, have this right relationship with God. The only way. This is amazing because, one, this is the most important thing that we could ever do is transfer our trust from ourselves to our Savior by way of faith alone in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. And that we all need that. Because, I don't know about you, but there was a significant time in my life where I wasn't walking with the Lord, and I was trying to fulfill some kind of desire within me that I couldn't quite fill with all these other things. Because there's a desire in us that's only meant to be filled with our relationship with the Lord. You were created to worship Him, created to be known by Him and to know Him. That's why we were created. But having a right relationship with God 100% influences your relationships with others. 100%. And so if you're looking for a takeaway, let me give you one. If this wasn't enough, your relationship with God, if that's off, your relationships with others will be as well. 100%. It goes back to what our mission statement is of the church. We read it right from the Bible. It's amazing. It's what we do. To love God is the only way you can love others. And by loving others, you sacrifice so we make disciples, which goes back to our love of God. In the same way, our right relationship with the Lord influences our relationships with others. Put it another way. 
Forgiven people, forgive people. You guys know that? Forgiven people, forgive people. Grace given people, give grace. So think about how this influences your relationship with your spouse. Your children, your parents, your co-workers, your classmates, your once friend, now frenemy, right? Forgiven people, forgive people. Grace given people, give grace. How's that working out in those relationships? If something's off there, I would point back to your relationship with the Lord. Every time. You know, I've had the privilege to do several wedding ceremonies this year. I have another one coming up this month I'm really looking forward to. And one thing I always point back to is that you will not have the intimacy with one another that God created without you having the intimacy with the Lord first as the priority. And just for a structure, I'm kind of a black and white, neat structure. Priorities. If you're married, your first relationship priority is with the Lord. Number one. Next is your spouse. And if God has led you to have kids, third is your kids. When we get that out of whack, your relationships will not be in the structure that God designed them to be. In other words, they will be unhealthy. But this all goes back to our relationship with the Lord. And so when I say forgiven people, forgive people, you may be like, well, Pastor Josh, you don't know what this person did to me. And you're right. You're right, I have no idea. But I know what Jesus did for you. And that changes everything. I go back to Romans 5 a lot. When I struggle with unforgiveness or I walk along someone who's struggling with unforgiveness, Romans 5 says this, verse 6. It says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So far, the Bible's called you and I helpless and ungodly. Romans 5.8, but God proves his own love for us in that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So what does that mean? While we were enemies, while we were sinners, while we were opposed to God, we didn't ask for it, we didn't deserve it, God extended grace and forgiveness to us anyway. And so what the Bible says is that if you have a hard time extending forgiveness, extending grace, an easy time harboring hate, the Bible says, who do you think you are? That's what it says. I'm just taking a whole gang of verses and just summarize them for you. Who do you think you are? If you're following Christ and yet you're rejecting forgiveness, extending forgiveness, who do you think you are? And I say that with love for you because I know things are hard, but it's a perspective. We have to remember what we've been forgiven of because only then, that right, right relationship with the Lord, can we have those right relationships with others. So we extend forgiveness even when it's not deserved or asked for because that's exactly what Christ did for you and I. Jesus says you have to die to yourself to follow him. At times, that may mean giving undeserved forgiveness because that's exactly what Jesus gave us. But I want us to see as we enter in this Christmas season. This is Jesus. He is Christ. He is the way of salvation. The Lamb of God sacrificed for our sin so that everyone who believes His sacrifice for your behalf was a substitution so that you don't have to bear God's wrath because it's already paid for, it's already born. 
So I'm going to invite our, our band back up, and we're going to sing one last worship song. But I'm going to encourage you to respond to what God's doing right now. Don't ignore it. Listen, there's only one teacher in this place, and it's the Holy Spirit. And what he does, he moves and works, and I'm going to ask you to respond to what he's moving and working in your life right now. So that could look a variety of ways. For some, it's going to be standing and singing after our pray as we lead this next song of worship. Glory to God and praise to him because he is worthy. And that's a response to who God is. It could be very well you sitting and praying and repenting for some relationship issues that you are directly a part of. And then committing to do your part of trying for and extending forgiveness and reconciliation. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for you. It could be for the very first time that maybe you've come to see that you really haven't put your faith in Jesus. I know a lot about facts about Jesus. I can quote a lot of scriptures. I go to church. But you've missed the relationship. If that's you, and this is your time to respond by way of repenting. That means, Jesus, I've seen that. I've sinned and fallen short of who you are and your glory and forgive me. And somehow, some way, I believe that your blood on the cross counted for me. And that through faith alone, I have that relationship with you that I've created to have in the first place, now and forever, because I've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when I believe. That whoever confesses their sin will be forgiven. You respond to what God's doing in your life. We'll have a prayer team on the side. We'd love to pray with you, pray for you, walk alongside you. It's a great part of being a part of a faith family because you're not in this alone, nor were you designed to be. But respond to what God's doing. And let it be a heart of worship because of who he is, because this, this is Jesus. Pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. Lord, we thank you for the reminder of who you are are and because of who you are who we can be in you that you are our identity when we place our faith in christ jesus we've trust in your promises that by faith alone we are made new we're a new creation in christ jesus those old things have passed away and see the new have come and lord let us walk in that newness of life the freedom from sin and the freedom that it is to be sons and daughters of the King. Because of you, you paid our ransom. You rescued us from our sin. You've reconciled ourselves. You've brought us into a right relationship with you in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I just pray that you lead us with a heart for you. And through a heart for you, Lord, lead us into right relationships with others. And so give us the strength to extend forgiveness. Give us the strength to give grace when it's undeserved, unmerited, even unwanted. God, I just pray that you give us, by the power of the Holy Spirit, a leading to obedience to what you're calling us to in this moment. And let's just launch the rest of our day into a lifestyle of worship. The rest of this week into a lifestyle of worship, Father. Let our lives be poured out of worship to you. Because you are worthy. We thank you for being present in this place. We thank you for being with us and never leaving us or forsaking us. And we thank you for Jesus. And in his name we pray, in the most powerful name, the name that's above every other name, that is the name of Jesus, we pray all this. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to the Way Church Podcast. If you would like prayer or if you'd like to talk to someone about a personal relationship with Jesus, please contact us through our website at thewaychurchrva.com.